Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Spring is here, which means it's time for our annual spring gardening hour, and we are going back to the basics. And when I say basics, I mean, I want to ask questions like, why are my succulents dying? Is it me or is my ponytail palm being really dramatic right now? What's a zone? How do you choose the right kind of soil? And how much sun does a plant need? What I need is answers, and maybe you do too. If you're a new or aspiring gardener, our favorite gardening extraordinaire, Charlie Nardozzi, is joining us to answer our questions and yours about getting comfortable with the soil. We want to hear from you. What questions do you have about making the most of your garden? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Well, it's great to be here, Catherine. So uh, like we said earlier, we want to get back to the basics, but I also want to dig into your roots of your origin gardening story. How did you get started? And I will absolutely put as many plant puns in this conversation as possible. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Well, I started uh, as a budding gardener (laughs) in Waterbury in the shadow of my Italian Uh, grandfather's farm. Every time one of his kids got married, he gave him a piece of land to build their home. And the farm, of course, was behind all these homes. And so my mother would always have a a vegetable garden and flowers around the house, and I would help her with that. So it was part of my DNA, you might say. Uh, Then I went to school at the University of Vermont, got a degree in horticulture and a master's in education, and started writing for a magazine, National Gardening Magazine. And then one thing led to another, and I started doing radio and TV and writing books and tours and doing all kinds of things. Uh, But I never forgot my roots in Connecticut, so it's great to still have a show there and to be part of this show. No, absolutely. And just to let our listeners know that Charlie is also the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. And so clearly so in touch with with nature and with gardening. So how would you recommend people who want to get started with it? I'm assuming it probably starts by figuring out their space, right? Whether you have a patio or a lawn or maybe like a balcony space. You know, how do how would you recommend people to get started? Yeah, I would definitely recommend taking a look at your yard or whatever space you have um, and decide what kinds of things you want to grow. Are you a flower lover? Are you an edible plant lover, vegetables and herbs? Uh, Do you want to just kind of pop in a few shrubs here and there because you just want to create a little barrier, that kind of thing? Uh, Think about what it is you want to get from your garden. And then once you have that idea in mind, then we want to start small. Uh, That's probably one of the biggest mistakes beginning gardeners do, especially ones who have a yard where they could turn a lot of soil and build raised beds and do all these things they get very excited this time of year and they're out there building beds and and buying plants and they put all this stuff in and they realize oh 
I've got to take care of all this. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. And so uh, the summer comes and weeds come and insects come and animals come. And, and so there's lots to it. So I always tell beginning gardeners, start small. It could be a couple containers of your favorite herbs or favorite flowers. It could be a small raised bed where you're growing a few vegetables in there or maybe a small little shrub or something. Start small, get comfortable with gardening, get used to going out there and visiting the garden every day for a couple minutes. Um, and and get some success doing it so because once you've been successful at gardening then you're hooked and you'll be out there every spring planting things so what i'm getting is you actually have to do the work and it's not just magic that will make my yard grow this is very very dis uh disheartening for me <laughs> oh <laughs> well there is a certain element of magic i yes. think it's kind of magical every spring that the leaves come out i mean something we take for granted but it's like if they don't come out, we're in uh, in trouble. Right, right. No, so, absolutely. Yes, there's definitely some magic to the whole gardening thing. And even experienced gardeners will tell you, we still kill plants. I still try plants and I think that they're in the right place with the right conditions and they still die. So that's just kind of part of the whole gardening experience. Uh, so you do have to do some work to it, but you can also be smart about doing that work, starting small, using some of the techniques that we can talk about on this show, uh, which will minimize the amount of maintenance you have to do as far as watering and weeding and caring for the plants so that you can enjoy them more and not have to work so hard to get them to grow. Well, I do believe uh, nature has a lot of magic and it makes me feel so much better, Charlie, that to hear that you also kill plants. So <laughs> <laughs> I know people love to hear that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so we're choosing we're choosing spots where we're figuring out our, our yards. So should you choose a place that's close to a water source when that makes sense? Yes. So that would be one of the first things you want to consider. You know, take a look at your yard uh, and see. Uh, first thing you want to look at is where is the sun? Uh, how much sun do you get in that yard, especially in that area where you're thinking of planting something? And this is something you have to just kind of put on your timer on your uh, phone or your watch or something. And so you go out there every couple hours uh, this time of year and just see, is it sunny there or is it not sunny? And of course, do it on a sunny day. <laughs> It'd be a lot easier to figure that out. Uh, and that gives you an idea this time of year. And then you want to set your timer to uh, do it again, probably in June or July, and then do it again in August, September, because, of course, the sun is changing where it is in the sky. And by August, September, it might be it's lower in the sky. And so you might be getting shadows in that spot that you thought was full sun. So after you've kind of done that through a growing season, you have an idea, okay, this is a full sun area. And when I say full sun, I mean six to eight hours of direct sun a day. Uh, it doesn't have to be all at once. It could be three or four in the morning, and then maybe you have some shadow from a tree, and then three or four in the afternoon, evening. That's fine. But six to eight hours is full sun. Uh, part sun is usually three to four hours a day, and you can still grow lots of plants in part sun. And shade is usually a couple hours of sun a day, and even then you can grow a lot of plants too. Uh, so there's options for different kinds of sun conditions. And then you consider you know, where is the water source, how close is it to your uh, yard and, and walkways. Um, the best thing to do is put it close to where you're going to walk by every day, especially if you're a beginning gardener, because you'll forget about it. If you put it out back somewhere or on the side of the house somewhere, you'll just forget that there's a garden over there after a few weeks. And then, of course, that's when you have lots of problems. But if you're walking by it every day, you're going to stop. You're going to maybe water a few things, pull a few weeds, grab a few cherry tomatoes, pluck a few flowers, um, and just take care of it a little more consistently. Well, that sounds magical, actually, in of itself. Um, can you explain to our listeners, now, what's a zone? Oh, so uh, the zones are 
developed by the United States Department of Agriculture. They're called hardiness zones. And it is good to know what your zone is if you're planting trees and shrubs in particular. Some perennials too, for a certain extent, but it's really uh, critical for trees and shrubs. And the zones are broken down from one, which is the coldest zone, like northern Alaska, to 11, which is the warmest zone. Um, Hawaii would be a good example of that. And everything in between. So in Connecticut, the zones that are mostly dominate the landscape are zones five, six, and maybe a little bit of seven along the, the uh, long island, along the uh, sound, along the shoreline. Uh, so knowing that zone will help you know which plants are adapted to that zone. So for example, when you go to a garden center, you'll see the little plant tags that are there. Often on those plant tags, if you look closely on there, they'll say hardiness zone, zone five or zone six or zone seven. And then you can find out what your zone is just by going to the USDA website, just Google USDA website, hardiness zones, that map will come up. You put in your zip code and it'll tell you what zone you are in the country. Uh, so if you're in um, New Haven and you're zone six, for example, then you're going to be looking for plants that are least hardy to zone six. Uh, maybe plants that are even hardy to zone four or five is okay, but you don't want to go warmer. Let's see, once you go warmer, then you're starting to risk losing that plant in the winter because the zones are based on winter minimum temperatures. And with climate change, things have all gotten out of whack. So what will happen is we'll have three, four, five years of, of kind of non-winters, like we've had this past winter, actually, in Connecticut, uh, where it really didn't get that uh, snowy or not that cold. Um, and uh, plants that normally wouldn't survive, survived. And so you kind of get this false sense of confidence. And then you get a test winter is what we call it. When those polar vortexes come down, it turns the, the landscape into this frozen Arctic tundra. Um, and it kills those plants that are not necessarily hardy there. So that's why it's really important when you're investing in something like a tree or shrub that costs a lot of money, uh, that you check out the zones, make sure you get the right zone for your right plant. Um, and that way it's more likely to be successful. And before we get into some digging, I want to take a call actually from Brenda, who is in West Hartford. And I believe she has a question about soil. Brenda, you are on the air. Oh, thank you. Um, my question is, I fell in love with gardening originally in southern New Jersey, which had more of a volcanic soil. I'm now up in the northeastern part of the state, and although I've had some success, and I'm still trying to put nutrients in the soil and improve it, just not getting the same type of success, what differences do I need to know between those two soil types that I can mitigate those results? Sure. Uh, I think the first thing to do would be to do a soil test if you haven't done this already. And the University of Connecticut has a soil lab where you can send off samples, uh, filling out their forms, of course, and you can go online and find all of that information. Uh, and you can send the samples to them and they will give you a report about what nutrients are in your soil, how much organic matter you have in your soil, and your pH of your soil. And that will give you a snapshot view of what your soil looks like on a mineral basis. Um, and that's always good to have because you might find out that you're very low in a, a mineral or a nutrient like potassium. And so then you need to add a little fertilizer to help balance that out. Uh, the other thing that you want to really be uh, aware of is to add a lot of organic matter to your soil. Um, our soils in the Northeast in general, actually east of the Mississippi in general, tend to be more acidic because we have lots of rain and it, it makes the soils uh, kind of uh, go in that acidic range of the pH. Um, and that's okay for some plants like rhododendrons and blueberries, but for many plants, if it gets too acidic, then it's not so good. 
A way to mitigate that effect is to add organic matter. When I say organic matter, I mean things like compost, um, shredded uh, chopped leaves or shredded up hay or straw or grass clippings from your lawn, for example. Adding that into that soil is going to create a richer, more vibrant soil that can withstand any kind of changes that the weather and the climate is throwing at it. And then if you add the right nutrients based on the soil test, I think you'll be able to bring that up to optimum fertility and then you'll be able to grow plants more successfully. Well, thank you so much for that question, Brenda. And uh, just a reminder that you can also join the conversation and ask some questions. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so kind of jumping on Brenda's question, Charlie, so how do you pick the right type of soil, you know, especially with the different prices of soil or just, you know, the different areas that we might want to do our, our gardening or planting? Yeah, so uh, once you figure out what kind of soil you have, you know, Brenda seemed to have a good idea of it up in the northeast part of the state. Uh, but uh, whether you have a sandy soil or a heavy clay soil, where I garden, it's a heavy clay soil. So I, I know that I'm going to deal with a soil that's going to be slow to warm up in the spring, really uh, heavy, sticky soil when it's wet. And then when it dries out too much, it turns into concrete. Lovely, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but actually, clay soil is great soil because if you keep plants growing on it, um, like a lawn, for example, it does really well. It's very high in nutrients and holds water well. Uh, now, most people, though, I think if they're just starting out, are probably going to build either a raised bed or have containers. So if you're building a raised bed, it's probably easiest just to buy soil, like you were mentioning, Catherine. Uh, you can go to a garden center, you can see bags of soil, and I would get a mix of 50% of compost and 50% of topsoil. And you can figure out just by the square footage of your raised bed how much soil needs or how many bags you would need. And do like a 50-50 mix, put all that soil in there, and then you'll be ready to go. That's going to be a nice rich soil medium and you don't have to worry about what your native soil is. For containers, you're, it's a whole different situation because you can't really use regular compost and soil in containers. It compresses and it's not really great for the plants. So that's why we use potting soil, and, and that's a whole nother bag or another different type of soil. That's got ingredients in there, natural ingredients, um, that help with water drainage and airflow. And that's really key in a container because you don't want it to compact down. Uh, so you want to get a, a nice potting soil mix uh, that might have fertilizer added to it. That would probably be the simplest thing for a beginning gardener. Uh, they'll say that right on the bag, and that way you don't have to think about fertilizing it for a few months. Uh, and you put those in there, and then you'll grow all your plants and flowers. And so once we figure out our yards, hopefully, um, and our spaces and our soil and, and all of that, how do you pick the right tools for your first gardening project or how do you care for your tools or do we need any? Well, it'd be nice to have some tools. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you feel like a gardener if you got a couple of tools. I hanging think so. Around. When I put my gloves on, I feel super like I'm, I'm an expert. Like, let's go at this. That's right. It's like, I'm, I'm serious about this now. I got my gloves on. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I think for a beginning gardener who is just doing a container or a small raised bed, some hand tools would be fine. Uh, a little trowel uh, to dig holes to plant transplants, um, a little what they call a little garden rake or a little garden fork. You see them, they have three prongs and they're just a small little hand tool. Those are nice for smoothing out the soil. Um, if you're starting to get into doing more uh, gardening, uh, you have a, a small yard, for example, and you're digging holes, of course, you'd like to have a nice shovel for doing that. Uh, and if you're having bigger gardens, you might want a hoe um, to do that as well. 
if you're someone who inherited a landscape and you have all these trees and shrubs around and you want to take care of them, you probably want a good pair of hand pruners. And that's something we could talk a whole show about pruning. <laughs> but hand pruners are really essential for pruning shrubs and, and trees uh, to keep them looking good, to keep their size what you want them to be. Well, thanks for the show idea. We'll get right on to that. Um, and, and how do you figure out when is the right time to garden? And I'm assuming also depending on what you're looking to plant. We've got Mother's Day is around the right around the corner, um, but we've also seen snow in May before. So how do you figure out when your last frost is and when is the best time to start gardening? Uh, right. So there is actually maps and information about the last frost date for your area. And that's another thing you can look up online. Um, generally, uh, in Connecticut, I would say it's anywhere from the beginning of May to the end of May, <laughs> depending upon where you are. You know, if you're along the shoreline, uh, it's going to be much sooner. Uh, you can plant much sooner because you have the mitigating effect of, of the ocean. Um, if you're up in the Northeast Hills or Northwest Hills, um, it might be later. You might get a frost, uh, even as late as Memorial Day. In general, when we're planting what we call annual plants, plants that will die back every year and you have to replant them every year. So those would be most of our vegetables and many of the flowers that we're growing. Those you want to be planting sometime in May. Traditionally, it's between Mother's Day and Memorial Day. Uh, and that's when most of the time the, the frost is, is not going to be a, a problem uh, in people's yards. Um, if you're planting more plants that are going to be long-lived, perennial plants, uh, there's perennial flowers or flowers that will come back year after year. And then, of course, the trees and shrubs I was mentioning, those you can plant earlier. You can usually plant those uh, in Connecticut probably even in April uh, without any problem. Uh, because even if they do get a frost, it's really not going to affect them too much because they're a perennial plant and you really want to get their roots growing fast into the soil. Um, so if you're just starting out, I would say this Mother's Day is a great time to go out with your mom, go pick some plants out. Maybe your mom has some experience gardening and she could help and she could help you get your garden going. Um, if she's busy on Mother's Day <laughs> with other siblings, uh, you can get her next weekend or even Memorial Day. So you'll have plenty of time to get going. Well, my mom is actually not a big gardener, so I'll like doodle her flowers. So that's that's going to be where we're going. But I, based on this conversation, you're telling me that I need to get my gloves ready for this weekend to start planting. So making, yes. making that note. Uh, we've been talking plants with gardening extraordinaire Charlie Nardozzi. Let us know if you have any questions or any fun plant stories that you'd like to share. We'll be back after a short break, but please give us a call. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WM. NPR or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. 
ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We have horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi here with us today to answer your questions and to share some of his gardening tips for newcomers and for those who have a green thumb as well. So, Charlie, we've been talking about choosing the right space, getting the right soil, having the right tools. How? The next question naturally will go to how do you pick out the right plants for you and your space? Ah, that's a good question. Um, So going back to what we were talking about earlier about sun levels, that would be one of the criteria, probably most important criteria. Uh, So you have to know how much sun that area is where you're going to plant a specific plant and then get a plant that's going to be adapted to that. So for example, if you have a full sun area that gives you a whole range of flowers, for example, you can grow um, everything from geraniums to zinnias to cosmos, they all do fine in that kind of setting. Or if you're doing perennial flowers, rudbeckias and eachnaceas and the salvias, all those beautiful flowers, peonies, which will be blooming soon. Um, If you have a shady area, an area that only gets a few hours of light a day, maybe it's on the the north side of your house um, or building, um, or it's shaded by some trees, there's a whole host of plants that you would plant in those situations for perennials, ones that come back year after year. Uh, plants like hostas are a really easy and nice plant to have. Uh, for annuals, it could be begonias and impatiens in those settings. So that would be one of the first criteria is that where I'm planting these plants, is it going to be sunny or is it going to be a little more shady? And so you'll get the right plants for the right setting. Then you decide, is this going to be a flower garden that's going to knock my socks off all summer with flower and color? Um, If you're going to do that and that's what you want to have, then you want to do annual flowers because they've been bred to bloom their little heads off all summer long and not stop. Whereas perennial flowers will bloom intensely for a short period of time and then they'll stop blooming and then they might repeat. But mostly with perennials, you have to then buy ones that will bloom a little bit earlier, a little bit mid-season, a little bit late season to have consistent color. So for annuals, that's probably the easiest place to start. Just start with all those plants that, and you'll say that right in the garden center, you'll see the big sign saying annual plants here, annual flowers here. Uh, And those will be the the best ones to start with. Um, If you're doing vegetables, the same thing is true. Most vegetables though, like full sun. Uh, There are some like the leafy greens, lettuces and Swiss chard and kale that can take part shade and do okay and still grow all right. But if you're looking for something that's going to fruit, like a tomato, a squash, a cucumber, then you want to have full sun, and that's going to be the criteria to buying those. And can you talk about also what are some annuals that are good for newcomers, and what about perennials? Are there sort of basic ones that people can work with or you know whatever they're feeling with? Uh, yeah. So if you're just starting out and you want to just be successful, I just want anything out there. I just want some color. <laughs> yes. Uh, so for annual flowers... Uh, some of the easiest ones would be the, some of the ones I've already mentioned, the marigolds, the geraniums, the annual geraniums, one of my mom's favorite flowers when she was around. We would always go buy uh, annual geraniums uh, at the local nursery and pot, put them in pots in front of her house, and she would love those. Uh, those do really well. Zinnias are a really easy plant to grow and, and do really well and kind of almost guaranteed that you're going to get some flower color from them. 
Uh, for a shadier garden, uh, the impatience and the begonias are, are really nice plants. Snapdragons do okay in the shade. They're always fun to do because they have those little flowers that look like a, a little dragon talking when you squeeze them. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, they're called snapdragons that way. Uh, so those are some of the, the easier ones. For vegetables, I would always start with things like bush beans are really simple. Uh, zucchini and summer squash are simple. A nice cherry tomato. Get a sun gold. I love sun gold cherry tomatoes. Um, just one. It's all you're going to need, even if you have a family, because they produce so much fruit. So just having those kinds of plants in there are, I wouldn't say guaranteed for success, because nothing's really guaranteed, but you're going to have a high likelihood of success if you start with those kinds of plants. Well, now I just really want some cherry tomatoes. So <laughs> we'll be getting on that right after this show. <laughs> okay. And so um, can you also talk about the importance of planting um, native plants versus non-native? Um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of I, I certainly would love to plant uh, plants that attract bees or you know insects and, and all that. So are the, is that is that important to think about when you're planning your space? Oh, yes, absolutely. So uh, that's another one of the criteria. Once you figure out the sun and the soil and the kinds of plants you want to grow, another uh, filter you might say when you go to buy them is, is this a pollinator friendly plant? Meaning that is it a plant that bees and uh, flies and all kinds of different pollinators, hummingbirds, um, will be able to use for food and will help them uh, stay in your yard and you're in your in your environment? And a lot of those plants are native plants or plants that are very close to being natives. So for a perennial flower garden, a pollinator garden or a butterfly garden, for that matter, uh, you would grow plants like the echinaceas and the salvias and the bee bombs. These are all plants that really are, are very good at attracting pollinators to your yard. What's critical with pollinators and, and with butterflies is to make sure you have something blooming all through the season. So that's why those annual plants are really nice. Zinnias are a great pollinator plant for that reason. Uh, but if you mix in some annuals and perennials, you can mix things up. You don't have to have one kind of garden or another. You can mix them all up. You can put edibles in there, too. Uh, you want to have something blooming from spring, you know, from April, May, all the way into September. So that could start with things like pansies and violas early in the season, um, all the way till asters in the fall or goldenrod in the fall. And by having something blooming the whole time, that's going to be the best thing you could do for a pollinator because it gives them a constant food source right through the growing season. And on that note, we are going to take another call from Terry, who's in Stanford, and I believe he has a question about drought-resistant plants. Terry, you're on the air. Hi. Um, in light of last year's drought, uh, we are looking at the coming climate change and wondering if there is, if you could refer us to some source, some list of tough drought-resistant plants that we can have in our yard. I'm not talking about um, vegetable gardening, but um, that we could not have to worry about so much when climate change occurs. Uh, sure, yes, there are definitely lists of drought-resistant plants, talking about perennial flowers, trees and shrubs, those kinds of plants. In general, uh, a plant that has a, a thicker, more succulent leaf to it is going to be more drought-resistant. Think of cactuses, for example, out in the West, um, or some of those succulents that we can grow here. Uh, the um, sedum autumn joy, for example, is a classic one, or any of the creeping sedums. Uh, they have those thick, succulent leaves to them. That means they can hold water uh, for an annual flower, a portulaca flower or the moss rose is another good example of that. So there are lists of those that you can look up online and they may not be specifically to Connecticut, but anything in this region, you know, it might be found in New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts. Um, those are, are plants that you want to refer to. 
Another thing to look towards as far as climate change, since Terry brought that up, um, is that you want to have plants that, of course, are adapted. We talked about hardiness zones before, and native plants are, are best for those. But you also want to have plants that are healthy, too. So make sure you plant something in the right plant place. It has good soil water drainage. It's not going to be sitting in puddles of water uh, in the spring when the snow melts. Um, and it has the right sun and conditions, and maybe it's a little protected. So maybe it's on the east side or southeast side of your house or a building so that it doesn't get those harsh, cold, northern winds directly on it in the winter. Things like that can help mitigate the effects of climate change and also mulching really well. Um, that'll help conserve the soil moisture. So when we do have dry periods in the summer, which will be occurring more and more uh, with all the variability of the weather, uh, you'll be able to mitigate some of those adverse situations by having wood chips around your plants, your trees and shrubs and perennials that will hold the moisture in the soil, stop weeds from growing too, and as they break down, release nutrients for your plants. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for that question. And Charlie, we also hear the word deadheading a lot. Can you tell us what does that mean? Oh, so deadheading, yes, nothing to do with the Grateful Dead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different show. That's a different show. So deadheading is when a flower dies, goes by. Uh, we talked about been talking about annual flowers that will flower all summer. Uh, so say we'll come back to our zinnia. Um, it grows up. It has a beautiful flower. It starts dying back. What you'll do is you go out and take your, your hand pruners or scissors for that matter uh, and just snip that flower off. Just remove it. That's called deadheading. Now, that was a traditional thing you really had to do a lot of with our annual flowers to keep them blooming. Because if you let them form a seed, uh, which is where the flower is going to, you know, it has a, the flower gets pollinated, forms seed, that's going to take a lot of energy from the plant growing more shoots and more flowers. Now you get a lot of plants that are self-cleaning. I would love to have a house that's self-cleaning too. But, Speaking of magic. <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? There's some magic for you right there. Uh, but they have these plants now that are called self-cleaning plants. And what means is that, that the, flower, the dead flowers just drop off on their own. And the plant keeps flowering and flowering. So if you have those plants, you don't have to deadhead. But most plants, it's good to go out there after those flowers pass. It's a nice little garden activity. It doesn't take very long. Just to snip off the, the dead flowers and remove them. Um, and this is true for perennial flowers, too. I was mentioning the bee bombs before and echinaceas. Uh, those, if you deadhead those after they're done flowering, a lot of times they will come back and bloom again later in the summer for you. So you get two cycles of bloom from them if you deadhead religiously. Well, that sounds like some magical nature thing going on. So I feel like that's a theme, Charlie, that we're... <laughs> yes, it's all about garden magic. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can give us a call if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Charlie, we've been talking about you know planting flowers that you love or that are good for bees. You also talked about vegetables and just produce. What about some herbs? that are good for newcomers. So do you have any suggestions or? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Herbs are great to go. It's actually a, a nice plant to really get introduced to gardening too, because there's a many of them are perennial herbs, Mediterranean herbs like thyme and oregano, uh, rosemary and sage. Um, 
pretty easy herbs to grow. A lot of times you can buy them as transplants in a garden center. They will like a lot of sun. Think Mediterranean. Think a lot of sun, a lot of warmth. Uh, so you can put them in a container or a small raised bed close to the house, close to your kitchen, so that when you're making your Italian tomato sauce, your marinara sauce, you can run out there and get some oregano or run out there and get some basil. Uh, so those perennial herbs are nice to have as a basis. And then you can add some of the annual herbs, like I just mentioned, the Genovese basil or some of the other basils. The Thai basils are really beautiful too and nice plants to add uh, when you're cooking those kinds of meals. Uh, so basil is nice. Parsley is another nice one to grow. Uh, another really easy one to grow that's hard to kill is a perennial called chives. If you ever have a baked potato and, and you want to sprinkle some chives on it uh, with a little butter, maybe a little sour cream. That sounds good, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, that's a I'm nice starving. I'm going to have to go out for breakfast after the show. Uh, so that's another nice one to have in your garden because it's an easy plant to grow. And the other nice thing about chives is that it flowers. It has these beautiful purple ball-shaped flowers on them that pollinators really like. And you can eat the flowers if you want to do that. Um, or you can just cut the whole plant right back down after the flowers pass and it'll just send up more shoots and you have more chives. So herbs are, are I don't want to say magical again, we've overused that word. But <laughs> it's great to have different kinds of herbs out around your yard so that you can use them when you're cooking or just have them. And some of them you can even bring indoors like rosemary and parsley to use them in the winter. Well, we'll try to find a different word for the word that you didn't want to mention just now. So <laughs> we have another question from Robert in Southbury. He has rain barrels and he's wondering what can he put in the water to keep mosquito larvae from hatching? Oh, so that's a good question. So rain barrels are a great way. We were talking about drought earlier, a great way to conserve water, to collect water and to collect um, water that's better for your plants. People don't often think about this, but if you're on a municipal water system, that's awfully, often chemically treated. And some plants don't like those chemicals that, are, that you're putting on the, in, when you're watering them. So a rain barrel is a nice way to collect natural rain, <clears throat> rainwater and use that to water your plants. Now, the rain barrel systems, uh, the best ones to get are enclosed systems. That means that it's a 55-gallon drum, it's got a top on it, and it's got a hole in it. So your drain pipe will actually feed in through that hole, through a screen, too, to get rid of all of the debris that's coming off your roof, the leaves and things like that, um, and filter that out. And then that way, because there's no access to the outdoors, you're not going to get mosquitoes in it. So I think, Robert, that would be the solution is to uh, create a rain barrel that has a top that's enclosed so there's no access for the mosquitoes to get in there. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for that question. And a reminder again that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And Charlie, so we've been talking a lot about, um, you know, finding space, getting tools and all that jazz. So in this case, do you, do you recommend growing from seed or having starter plants? You know, what are, are there benefits for either of those? Um, how should newcomers start with that? Yeah, so for a new gardener, I'd say go with transplants, especially if you have a small garden, so you don't have to buy that many plants. It's going to make life so much easier for you, uh, whether it be vegetables or herbs or flowers. Uh, you can go to garden centers. You know, For vegetables, it used to be certain things you'd have to start from seed, certain things you'd have to buy as a transplant or start as a transplant. Now it's uh, that that line has been blurred. So for example, I was in a garden center the other day and they had beans as transplants. I always grew, grow beans from seed, but you can actually buy bean plants or corn plant 
pests and put those into your garden. So I think that's the easiest way to go because you have a plant that's alive, that's growing. You don't have to wonder if it's going to germinate from seed and actually grow for you or not. Um, and it just makes life a lot easier. It is, of course, more expensive to do that. Seeds are a cheaper way to get a lot of these plants. Many of the plants that we grow uh, can be started from seeds, but some of them have to be started from seeds indoors weeks before you're ready to plant them outdoors. So you have to be careful about which ones. You don't want to buy uh, a pepper plant, for example, seed of a pepper plant, put the seed into the soil now and expect to actually get peppers by the fall. It just the growing season isn't long enough for that to happen. Um, so there, there's a little more figuring out that has to be done with seeds, um, but it's less expensive and you can get a lot wider range of varieties with seeds. And we've also been talking a lot about, you know, uh, making sure you know where the sun's at, how much sun you're getting and the spaces where the sun is is shining. And so how do you determine how much water now to care for your garden, garden's needs as the seasons and the weather changes and assuming that the sun also plays a role in this as well? Yes, of course. The sun and the wind, too. Wind will dry out the soil really quickly. One of the best ways to ensure that your soil is, stays moist enough through the summer is to mulch it. I mentioned that before uh, with the wood chips. If you have trees, shrubs, and perennial flowers, wood chips are great. Arborist wood chips are great. So if you have some arborist working in your neighborhood or working on the, the phone lines, cutting trees and chipping them up, walk over there. Don't be shy. Just walk over there and ask them, do you have a, someone who's, what are you going to do with those wood chips? And if they often, more often than not, they're looking for a place to dump the chips anyway. And they might dump a whole load in your yard and you're all set for a year or two with wood chips. Um, and the nice thing about wood chips is that they're different sizes. So you tend not to get weed seeds growing in them because the weed seeds kind of filter through and never are on the surface. Um, and they're cheap. I mean, they're free in that case, if you can get those. Um, and, and they're good for a lot of these perennial plants. Another way you can get wood chips delivered is on a website called getchipdrop.com. Getchipdrop.com. And that's a website where you can sign up, put your address and everything in there, and arborists look at that website. And if they're in your neighborhood, they'll contact you and say, hey, we're working on some trees. You want some wood chips? So that's the, probably the first level of really preventing the soil from drying out is making sure you have it covered with some kind of mulch. Uh, and for those plants, wood chips are great for annual flowers and vegetables. Grass clippings are good. Chopped up leaves or hay or straw is good. Keeping it covered is going to prevent the, the soil from drying out too much and, and make it so that you don't have to be worrying about is the soil too dry. The other thing you can do, especially for a small garden or container, is use your finger. Stick your finger in the soil. If you can stick it down into the soil and the tip of your finger is dry all the way down to when you get to your second knuckle, I'm just looking at my finger here, uh, second knuckle, um, then you know it's time to water. And when you water, make sure you water a container thoroughly so it drains out that drainage hole. So there's a couple things you could do to really gauge how much watering you need to do. Well, I also just looked at my finger to gauge, so that was perfect. And <laughs> also amazing segue to the next question is when when someone is creating a container gardener or or a container gardening garden garden, I really struggle with that one. Um, what should people keep in mind? You know, how do you pick the right containers for your garden? Yeah, it's gotten a lot easier. You know, it used to be um, when I first was starting out, you'd have <clears throat> clay pots and you'd have plastic pots and then there's really nothing in between. Now there's all kinds of containers made of all kinds of materials. There's certainly the classic clay and clay is great because it looks beautiful. It, it breathes. So it's great for plants that like to be a little bit on the dry side, don't like a lot of water. 
We were talking about succulents earlier, geraniums earlier, uh, portulacas, a lot of those kinds of plants really like a, a drier soil, not a wet soil. So, so clay is really nice. The plastic pots have gone through a whole revolution in the sense that they're not only these white or black or dark green plastic pots that kind of break down in the sun. There are these new pots that are out there that are made out of polyurethane. And the polyurethane is UV stabilized. So you can put it out there and they're all molded with different shapes and sizes. And they look like clay sometimes. They look like metal sometimes. And these containers can be left out over the winter. They won't crack and break like clay would over the winter, um, but they won't break down like regular plastic does too. So that's probably the best kind of container to start with. And they're lightweight, they're easy. You can get big ones, little ones, all different shapes and sizes. If you want to get really wild and more modern, <laughs> the chic thing, the trendy thing in containers is metal pots made out of galvanized metal or corrugated metal. Um, they're really fun. Uh, they're great because they warm up fast in the summer, uh, in the spring to plant things earlier, but they're bad in the sense that they warm up too fast. <laughs> I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah, a metal pod can really get hot and it get too hot for your plants. But if you're trying to grow tropical plants, say you're trying to grow cannas or hibiscus, something really wild, bougainvillea, why not try to get wild and grow a bougainvillea? Uh, they're great for that because those kinds of plants like the heat in their soil. So you can look, shop around for those different containers. And one last thing about them is look for self-watering containers too. These are containers that have a reservoir in the bottom. So you fill the reservoir, then you can go off for a weekend up to Cape Cod or somewhere and not have to worry about whether your container is staying moist enough. Well, when you said get wild, I kind of had an image of myself just grabbing a bunch of seeds and just sprinkling them into my yard and seeing what happens. <laughs> well, you could do that too. It may not be very successful, but yeah. you can try. <laughs> I'll try. You know what? I'll try and I'll let you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> Before we go to our next break, I want to take another call. George from Ellington has a question. George, you are on the air. I live in a an area between the end of my building and a strip of woods is very shady. And I was wondering if using a pot, I could uh, get echinacea out on the south-facing side of my building. It would be in shade until approximately 10.30 or 11, and then in the sunlight for the rest of the day. Would it do well in that area? Uh, yes, George, it would. Echinacea... Uh likes full sun. And I think if it's 1030 all the way till sunset, which this time of year is around eight o'clock, seven, eight o'clock, um, that's plenty of sun for an echinacea. The only thing you have to be aware of is that, as I was mentioning earlier in the show, the shade's going to move around. So by July and August, it might be shadier there. So the echinacea would not do as well if it's shady till two or three in the afternoon and only gets three or four hours. But otherwise, it would be fine on the south side of that building as long as it gets that six to eight hours of full sun. Thank you so much for that question, George. You've been listening to Charlie Nardozzi, who's a gardening extraordinaire and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal here at Connecticut Public. He'll be staying with us to chat about what happens when there are pests who likes to visit your garden space. Let us know if you have any questions or any fun stories that you'd like to share with us. We'll be back after a short break. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're jumping straight back to talking about plants and pests with Charlie Nardozzi, who is a horticulturist and the host of Connecticut Garden Journal here on Connecticut Public Radio. Okay, Charlie, so we've spent the entire conversation so far talking about how amazing it would be to have a great garden, beautiful flowers, fresh vegetables. But we all know pests are a very real thing. So what do we need to look out for and how do we get rid of them? Uh, yes, so pests definitely exist, <laughs> and more and more so, it seems. Um, and actually, animals seem to be more and more a problem than actually insects and diseases. Uh, there are many varieties of flowers and vegetables now that are resistant to certain diseases. Some of them are resistant to certain insect pests, too. But animals, eh, that's a whole other story. There's all kinds of lists of deer-resistant plants, for example, out there. But I swear that if a deer is hungry enough, they're going to eat pretty much anything. So one of the things you might want to do is consider what kind of wildlife you might have around your yard. Um, it could be squirrels in the trees. And this is a fun little activity to do. Just go out there maybe at lunchtime or something. If you have a deck or a patio, get a nice drink, sit there and just watch. Who's around? Are there a lot of birds around? Are there squirrels? Are there chipmunks around? Um, there are people complaining about rabbits running around the neighborhood or groundhogs. And of course, deer um, having them around. If there is a, a cause to be concerned about that, there's two ways to control pests. One is to have barriers of some type, whether it be a fencing for a deer or a covering for things like squirrels. Uh, the other are repellent sprays. And repellent sprays can be effective. They're made out of smelly stuff. Uh, some are made out of blood meal, rotten eggs, garlic, all kinds of different smells. Um, and you do apply them. And what happens is that they, the animal comes up, doesn't like the smell, and goes somewhere else. But the one downside of repellent sprays is that they don't last. So the rain will wash them off. They'll wear off over time. So you have to reapply them. And it's best to have two or three different types to rotate them. So the animal doesn't get used to that smell and decides that, oh, I like garlic on my broccoli, so I will just keep eating it. Um, so rotating the different smells is a really good idea. So that's a, kind of the first line of defense is figuring out what's out there and maybe creating some barriers and using some sprays going to take another quick call from Janet, who is in Manchester. Janet, you are on the air. Janet, are you there? She oh, might... hi. Sorry, the line, it, it sounded like the line went dead, so I... No problem. Go ahead with your question. Oh, start. Oh, sorry, hold on. Right now? Yes, go for it. Okay. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Janet. I'm, I'm in Manchester, Connecticut. Uh, Charlie, you responded to me about a, a week ago to an, a frantic email I sent you, but I didn't provide enough information, and I'm still stuck. Um, I have I was visited by the Asiatic beetle about four years ago when I first moved here. There's a dearth of information on the Internet. I've contacted organic farms in the area. They eat everything, and nothing. I spent hundreds of dollars on uh, pest products. From Agway, online, the internet, I kind of contacted Yukon Extension. They did a little bit of research for me. They didn't really, it wasn't helpful. And they eat, I would say, about 95%. I, the only thing I can plant are tomatoes and parsley. Wow. They Whoop. Yes. Yep. So, Go for it. Janet, you still there? 
I would go for it and just answer Janet's question. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure she's not the only one who has this problem. Yeah, so the Asiatic beetle, yes, it's a definitely a, a problem on many soils, especially sandier soils, lighter soils that they seem to really thrive. And they live in the soil. They come out at night, kind of like a creepy story, uh, and they munch on plants and then they hide back in the soil. So you often may not see them doing the damage, but if you dig around, you'll often will find them. Uh, there are a number of different types of things you could try, and it sounds like Janet's tried a lot of stuff, but I'll throw out some more ideas. One are beneficial nematodes. Beneficial nematodes are little microscopic little worms that come in a, literally come in a sponge when you buy them, and you rinse out that sponge into a pail of water, put the water in a hose-end sprayer, and you spray them on the area where you have the pest. It works really well with Japanese beetles. There are versions, I think, that would work for Asiatic beetles as well. And they parasitize the, the grub stage or the, the larval stage of those beetles in the soil and kill them. So that might be one line of defense is to try that. Um, some of the organic sprays that are out there, like the per, um, uh, perithium, pyrethrum type sprays, uh, those might be a nice one to try putting them on the leaves, especially for the flowers and not so much vegetables. Um, but even with vegetables, I think if you give them a period of time between when you spray and when you actually harvest anything, it'll be safe and wash them, of course. Uh, so there are a few things that you might want to try out there, Janet. I do remember your question, and you can contact me again if you, you have more questions for as, as a follow-up. Well, thank you so much, Janet, for taking the time and calling us and for your question. Um, we've only got about two minutes left, Charlie, but I do want to ask, we've been talking about outdoor gardening a, a bunch, but what about indoor gardening and succulents? Because I need to know how to keep my indoor succulents alive because they are very dramatic. Oh, so you are a gardener. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> we finally found your sweet spot, houseplants. Uh, so succulents, uh, as I was mentioning, I think earlier about succulents, outdoor succulents, indoor succulents, too, are the same thing. They don't want to be watered a lot. And what often happens when we're watering is we get in a schedule this time of year and plants are growing. There's a lot of light. The days are long. The, the temperatures are warm. And so we're watering maybe once a week, once a week or whatever schedule we have. And then comes the fall and the days get shorter and get colder and the plants really aren't growing much, but we keep watering the same amount. So what we need to do is adjust our schedules for watering, especially for succulents. In the winter, you may go weeks without watering them, um, and that might be okay. Uh, so that's really kind of the key with succulents is don't overwater your succulents. That sounds like the perfect plan for me. I will write that down. I think I can follow that one rule. Charlie, thank you okay. very much. <laughs> You've been listening to Charlie Nardozzi. He is a horticulturist and the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Charlie, thank you so much for spending time with us today and helping us learn more about plants. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to be here. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>